Hello, hi, uh, Tim, is it? it? It is, how are you, Julian? So as you know, every year we try to find great candidates to interview for our Father's Day Sunday. Uh, it's an awesome interview with Pastor Terry. I just wanna ask you a couple questions to see if you're a right fit for the position, is that okay? That sounds great. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm married, I have uh, to a lovely wife named Kimberly Northcutt. We have four beautiful children. I'm a husband and a dad of two wonderful kids. And I have three kids. Definitely have the, the dad box checked. Great, great. And what do you do for a living, Tim? Uh, so I work for a social media company. I work in sports and entertainment. I work for Major League Soccer. Uh, I am uh, a Broadway performer. I'm primarily a dancer, but I'm also a singer and actor, so. You're a dancer? Yes. Like? Yes. And you mentioned that you were a father, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, can you tell me a joke real quick? What is uh, yellow and goes click, click? I don't know. A ballpoint banana. Great, I like that. Knock, knock. Who's there? A father. A father who? A father like me. <laughs> well, when does a joke become a dad joke? Well, I think oh, you'll wait, be able no. to tell by the nature of the joke that you receive. I mean, that no, you the uh, the answer is when it's apparent. That was good. <laughs> yeah, I, that was. I was. I played right into it. That was. Wow. Did. How many pairs of Skechers do you own? Oh, zero. zero. Not not a Skechers guy. Uh, New Balance. <laughs> uh, one one pair of very white New Balance. Uh, yeah. In what pattern do you mow your lawn? Uh, do you do you have a lawn? Do I do have a lawn. Do you yes. take care of it yourself? Uh, I can't say that I do. Okay. All right. Noted. Oop. Diagonal stripes. Diagonal stripes. One hundred percent. But you don't know. You don't mow the lawn yourself. Yeah. No. Not not right now. But I know how to mow it though. Okay. All right. You're on vacation. Hawaiian shirt, fanny pack, socks with sandals, one of them has to go, what is it? So it has to be the socks with sandals. Okay. Because I like my Hawaiian shirt. The shirt is gone, absolutely. Okay. I would rather have a Hawaiian shirt and a fanny pack. I, I think I still own a fanny pack, so. Great, well I think this has been fruitful. Thank you again for, for your time. I'm pretty sure we grabbed all the information that we needed from you to make a, a good decision, and uh, I hope things work out. All right, I look forward to it. All right, thank you, sir. I look forward to uh, discussing and, and talking a little bit further about this opportunity. We'll call you, all right? <laughs> I'll be waiting. Okay, all right, all right. Take care now. Bye-bye. So, how do they look? I don't know. With their eyes? Hi, everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith, and I'm the lead pastor 
here at the Life Christian Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Hey, I know the video you just saw indicated that, that perhaps me and our team were vetting guys to see uh, who we would interview this week. I think the truth is that the guys you just saw are the ones who vetted me to see if they would sit up here and be interviewed by me on this Father's Day, and I'm glad that they chose to do it. I am so honored to be able to spend the next few minutes on this Father's Day to talk to some great men about faith, about family, about career, and uh, things that matter, things that are really important in life. So I want to introduce to you, first of all, to my left, Tim Fern. Tim is the global head of enterprise for Facebook. Thanks for being with us, Tim. Thanks, Pastor. Thrilled to be here. So glad you're here. Dr. Jamil Northcutt. Uh, Jamil is the vice president for player engagement for Major League Soccer. He's also a past executive for the NFL, the NCAA. You'll hear more about some of that in a moment. Thanks for being here, Jamil. Thanks for having me. And then it's great to be able to introduce Denny Pascal. Denny Pascal is in the midst of a very successful career in theater. He's now in his 11th year um, uh, dancing and performing in uh, Broadway's Chicago. Thank you so much for being here, Denny. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. It's great to have all three of you. And uh, I just want to um, model men of faith who, uh, from my perspective, seem to be getting a whole lot of things right about life. I know all of us have our struggles. Um, we all face challenges, and uh, all of us are a long way from perfect. But one of the things that I love about the Life Christian Church is that in our very diverse uh, uh, congregation, um, where there are all kinds of people who are represented here, um, we, we have uh, a lot of really strong men of faith um, from all kinds of different backgrounds. And um, I just think that, that this is something that our world needs. We need more men of faith who are uh, not just believers, but, but men who care passionately about their families, men who are successful in their careers. And um, anyway, I'm proud of the men of the Life Christian Church, and, and you guys represent them well. So uh, I, I want to start by just asking each of you to tell us about your family, all right? Um, Tim, introduce your family. Absolutely. Thanks, Pastor. So uh, I am a husband to my wife, Missy. We've been married now for uh, a little over eight years. We have a daughter, Olivia, uh, who is two and a half, and a son, Mac, who is six months. So uh, it has been certainly an interesting time over the course of uh, the last few months, getting to spend lots of time with family uh, and spending lots of time with my kids and wife as well. And yeah. you're, you're a New Jersey native, right, Tim? Born and bred here in Jersey, uh, went to college here, have lived here my entire life, uh, and absolutely love uh, everything about this state. Well, hallelujah. Not going to North Carolina anytime <laughs> I'm soon. I'm so happy to hear it. Uh, Jamil, talk a little bit, introduce us to your family first, and then talk a little bit about your, the, 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 the folks who raised you. 
Yeah, sure. Um, my wife's uh, name is Kimberly uh, Northcutt, obviously, and uh, we met in college. Uh, actually, one of my first days on campus, uh, attended the University of Mississippi, uh, Ole Miss, uh, where Eli Manning and I were teammates, but that's a story for another day. Back to the most important thing, which is my wife, uh, Kimberly, and my family. So She's Kimberly, not going to believe that since you brought <laughs> Eli Manning into discussion so quickly. Well, that's just something for the, for the, the, the fans here in this tri-state area, uh, fun fact. But nonetheless, Kimberly and I, we met years ago in 1999. Um, we've been together ever since then. We've been married. Uh, it'll be 14 years come July 1st. We've got four beautiful children. Uh, my son, Kellen, he's the oldest. Uh, my daughter, Layla, uh, she's the oldest uh, girl. Uh, I have a, a, I don't want to call her the middle girl, but uh, another one of my uh, children, Mackenzie, uh, she's in kind of in between. And then we also had Ava, who's a surprise baby who showed up one day. And so uh, Ava is our daughter. She's two years of age. And so really love them a, a, a lot. And I'm happy that they're in my life. I do remember the conversation in the lobby when you told me that Kimberly was going to uh, give you another child. There, there was some uh, shock about the announcement on your, on your part. Yes, it was uh, because um, arrangements had been made <laughs> to shut the shop down. <laughs> But, you know, uh, God saw something fit for something else, but we're happy that Ava is here. <laughs> Denny, uh, in introduce your family and then talk, uh, you know, same question. Uh, so I, my wife's name is Haven Burton, and uh, she's also a very talented performer. Um, yes, she is. We actually, um, since it's going to be Father's Day, that's also our anniversary. So this year, Father's Day happens to fall on our anniversary. It's ninth, ninth year. So nine years. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And um, we have three kids. Uh, our oldest is Hudson. He's eight. And uh, Caspian, who's three. And um, we had a surprise baby, too. A little baby girl named Nova, who just turned one. So She's a beautiful girl. Yeah. Yeah, we, they're, they're great kids. They're a little crazy, but it's awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks, Denny. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about each of you that I didn't know about each of you is that you're, you were raised in Christian homes and your lives were really centered around the church. And that's true of all three of you. It's pretty fascinating and um, perhaps a little bit instructive when you think about you know, how you want your kids to turn out and uh, you hear these three guys talk today uh, each of their parents centered the family's life around the church. So I want, I want to talk just a little bit about each of your careers. And uh, so let's start over there and come this way this time. Um, so here you are in this um, uh, family of faith. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm just guessing a relatively conservative family. Yes. And at eight years old, you tell your parents that you want to study ballet. Yes. Um, I, I really don't know where it came from either. It was, uh, it just happened. I must have either seen something or heard something or I don't know what it was. But I went to my mom, I was eight. I said, I want to take a ballet class. And she was like, okay. And I think that her and my dad both were like, okay, okay. Thinking it would be a face. And I, within months of starting, 
was like ready to drop everything else. Because I was what I, I just, I loved it. I loved it right off the bat. And I think it was hard at first. I think that any Southern Baptist family with their son being like, I want to take ballet, they're not, it's not necessarily going to be well received. So I was really impressed with my parents, the way that they rolled with those punches. Okay, so at some point, yeah. um, you took a huge risk to move from what would that be, the Northwest out there? Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was going to University of Utah. I got a full ride to University of Utah for ballet. So up until this point, although I'd done some musical theater, I was focusing on classical work, just ballet. And I was 18, and I'd been doing it for 10 years, and I was very focused. Um, and I got into Ballet West. They needed a couple extra guys, so they pulled some from the college. And I realized, I don't want to do ballet. And here I am spending 10 years of my life up to this point, and I didn't want to do ballet, just ballet anymore. But I knew that I still wanted to dance. So I left a full ride scholarship, full ride for four years, and I walked away from it after a semester. And I moved to New York. And I know that when you first got to New York City, uh, where you said you'd never been before, that you, you made a living by sweeping the floors and cleaning the bathrooms of, a, of some place that you wanted yeah. to learn a different yeah. kind of dance, right? Me and my friend Nick, Nick Kinkle, who actually is choreographing a lot of stuff right now, but he, um, he and I would go there. We were on a, a program to basically pay for classes. Classes are very expensive, and I had no money. I had just enough money to pay for like three months of rent, and that was it. I had no money for classes or food. So I would go and clean the floors and paint the hallways and clean the bathrooms and, and we, like anything they needed done, we would do. And in return, I got free classes, free dance classes. But then I still had no money for food. So I lived for months on Gray's Papaya hot dogs like, because it was cheap and it was like $2 a day. And that was it. And that was the first like three months in New York for me. And then things started taking off for you. Just give us a quick... Uh, a quick run through kind of what you've done in your career now, what, the last 20 years? I was very blessed and that went very quickly. So I got a cruise ship and I did that. And halfway through that, I got a call that I was hired for Radio City, but in Branson. So I did that. And right when that was finishing, I got a call that I was hired for Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. And I did that for four and a half years. And then at the, as I was kind of getting ready to leave, I got the job at Chicago. I did that for three years, and then I went to do Shrek, the musical, which is where I met Haven. Uh, we met in the first day of the workshop together, which was awesome. Uh, I did that for four years, and then came back to Chicago, and I've been there for eight. And that's, been pretty, that's pretty much the, the bulk of it. Um, in those interim moments, I was able to do things that I really had, like were on my bucket list. So I was able to perform at Lincoln Center, uh, City Center, Carnegie Hall. In those like three months between Shrek and Shrek tour, I was able to do a Sondheim show with Steven Sondheim at City Center with Casey Nicola and all these, all these people that I wanted to work with. It's been an amazing career so far. And um, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's been well-led. So. Well, I'm sure your parents must be incredibly proud and good for them and the support that they offered you to chase your dreams. Um, uh, you, you told me that when you came to New York City, 
that you, you had a list of things that you wanted to accomplish yeah. uh, in your field and that um, you now have checked every box. That now, is correct, you, yeah. You, you've, you've done a lot of dancing, but you also have played a lot of roles, understudied roles, where you're playing the starring role with some frequency yeah. in, in some of these shows, right? Uh, yes, correct. I, um, the, first, uh, the first one was I understudied John Tartaglia at Shrek the Musical. That was a really fun experience because it, it was just, I, his role was Pinocchio and the Magic Mirror. So in my first understudy role, I had to deal with prosthetics and a, not just prosthetics, but prosthetics with a motor that I had to control with a thumb switch and all that. It was crazy. And then for so the you Magic Pinocchio? Mirror. Pinocchio? Yeah. And that was my, I understudied Pinocchio. I played Peter Pan, but I understudied Pinocchio. It's, it sounds crazy, right? It kind of is. Um, but then for the Magic Mirror, I had to do motion capture face dots up in this attic space. And they had to put them on in like, 25 seconds, so it was like three makeup people gluing all of these crazy dots on my face, and then they put me in this room with this console, and it, it looked like this, like Star Trek Enterprise. Like, it was just buttons and knobs everywhere, and I was controlling all these cameras and doing scenes via video from a tower room. Wow. That was my first experience understudying, and it was crazy. Um, but since then, I've had the, the pleasure to understudy a lot of other things, and, and it's been awesome. Um, someone described you to me, someone who knows about Broadway, as the best dancer on Broadway. Now, I, 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 I don't, I can't certify that, but I'm just telling you that's, that's what's being said. So <laughs> I would, I would probably refute that comment only because I know some of the other dancers I've worked with. Well, don't refute it on national <laughs> television. But, um, but uh, I've done all right. I do okay. Sounds pretty exciting, Denny. So thanks for telling us about all that. Uh, Jamil, a uh, little bit of a different career path. Um, you were obviously a great athlete. You were Mr. Football in Tennessee, right in high school. Yes, I was. Uh, Highly recruited, decided to go to UMiss, and uh, you were, in fact, in the same class as Eli Manning. And so tell, tell us then kind of from that point forward, tell us about your career. Yeah. So, you know, I decided to go to the University of Mississippi. You know, I ended up meeting Kim uh, there. But from that point on, obviously, you know, I, I played five years there at Ole Miss. Um, education was obviously important, but also ball was important. And but so you, you earned your master's degree in those five years. Am I, I did. right? So within the five year period, you know, I'd started um, around the time of exhausting all my eligibility, I had already started on my master's. I graduated in three and a half years and started down that path of education. Because again, when you play college football, you're there training every summer uh, anyway, uh, to the point of where you're forfeiting opportunities to do internships with companies, uh, et cetera. But, you know, I had a, a good advisor within the department who said, look, you got an opportunity, you're on, on path to graduate early, you can start your master's. So from there, I, unfortunately, I didn't get drafted in the NFL. That was pretty devastating. Um, and it's kind of part of this whole piece of the essence of who I am, you know, having gone through that transition. But again, all of us uh, that are on this panel uh, that live life, 
are dealing with our own transition. So there's what they call in higher education transition theory. Uh, the definition is any event or non-event that results in these changes in relationships, assumptions, roles, and routines. And we're in constant change. Um, obviously with the pandemic, with different things that are going on, there are just different life experiences and changes that people are going through right now. And obviously for athletes, you know, or entertainers, I'm sure uh, D Denny can attest that when folks leave uh, show business or sports and entertainment, they struggle with trying to find out that next thing. And so that was always a passion of mine. And so when I, I didn't get drafted in the NFL, it was devastating to me. But I also would look around the locker room and realize that I wasn't the only one. And so I always had it in the kind of pit of my belly that that was something that I wanted to do to help change different people's lives. So um, long story short, I ended up in 2001, I was always somewhat of a leader on our team, but just also in the community and, and in the classroom, I got connected to a leadership uh, conference that the NCAA was putting on that one of the uh, athletic administrators, you know, he, he, did, he said, look, you need to go to this. And so from there, I discovered that, hey, I do like, I like sports, so there's opportunities for me to continue to work in sports, and I didn't really know that. So uh, I ended up meeting a lady there by the name of Veronica Conway. She ended up being the assistant commissioner in 2004 uh, for the Southeastern Conference. They had an internship that was available. And so I go, I do the internship. Uh, a year almost goes by. It's about nine or 10 months uh, into the internship. A uh, gentleman by the name of John Harris from the NFL who wanted me to uh, potentially do, do the internship at the NFL. And so I took that opportunity, uh, ended up being there 2005 through 2008, was with Dick Vermeil's staff as well as Herman Edwards' staff. So fast forward, I ended up leaving the Kansas City Chiefs uh, in 2008, January 2008. I go back to my alma mater in 2008 to be the Assistant Athletic Director for Internal Operations. For about six and a half years there, I complete my doctorate degree. So you completed your doctorate degree while being the assistant AD at Ole Miss, and your doctorate is in? Yeah, higher education administration. Okay. So I complete the doctorate during that particular point in time. I was there about six and a half years. I get a call from another colleague, uh, Ray Farmer, who became the general manager of the Cleveland Browns. We had worked together in cross paths in Kansas City. Uh, he wanted some help in kind of building uh, the player engagement and football administration um, sides of his of his organization when we were there with with the Browns and so I took that opportunity I moved I was there for uh, two years uh, as a director of player engagement as well as a consultant um, we all ended up getting fired at some point which is part of the business and so I'm I can talk about that not comfortable really rocky and rough time uh, for me and my family at the time but but God always made provisions for us which that led me to Jersey. So after that experience, I ended up getting a job to be the director of football administration with the National Football League. I was there for a year and some change. And then we had another transition there uh, with that league office. And I ended up going to the NCAA for a year. And then I got the call to come to Major League Soccer, which was a hard decision. We were in Indianapolis, we were closer to our family, but they wanted somebody to come in to kind of build this area out of player engagements, which they, which they did not have. But we, we felt like it was a great opportunity after praying about it uh, to kind of move back to Jersey. Well, the fact is, I think you got prayed back here <laughs> because when you were with the NFL, you were attending TLCC and we're just starting to get to know you and you get this job with the NCAA and move to Indianapolis, Indiana. Who would want to live in Indianapolis, Indiana? 
I think uh, Pastor Terry Smith is from there. <laughs> well, I'm from there, but and thankfully, it was a wonderful surprise when you guys showed back up, and uh, hopefully, all your career moves will be in the New York City metropolitan area now. Deal. Deal. Okay. Maybe. That's on record. <laughs> Deal today. How about that? <laughs> Tim Fern. So, so uh, Jamil earned his master's degree in five years. You told me that when you went to college that you, you earned your bachelor's degree in five years. I, I did, yes. Congratulations. Thank you, Thank you for that. I was, when I heard uh, Jamil's story, I was, knew I would be embarrassed. So that's great. Thank you. Uh, but somehow it's all turned out pretty well for you. It has. By God's grace, I will say that. Well, if I, if I, if I remember your story correctly, you started with a pretty kind of cushy career track with Verizon, right? You kind of want to talk us through from there to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of that story also um, is, is part of my college experience as well. Uh, unlike uh, the talented performer uh, that Denny is and then the, the talented athlete that Jamil is, uh, I had none of that. Uh, so I actually ended up uh, working full-time and going to school full-time. And for me, that was a part of just creating um, the, I should even say mirroring the work ethic that my mom and dad both exhibited uh, throughout you know, my childhood. And for me, it really helped develop the, the kind of passion and desire to learn, listen, and hustle uh, is kind of how I would uh, define my career. And the, the time at Verizon, exactly as you described, could have been a, you know, a comfortable career trajectory, 30 years, taking promotions and being really comfortable. Uh, but after a certain period of time, uh, it just sort of became boring. Um, there was a, there's a part of my personality uh, that I don't show off very often, um, but I'm, I, I love taking risk. And for me, it was looking for the right opportunities to, to just go learn and listen and, and do something very, very different. And after Verizon, uh, I <laughs> went into the world of uh, venture, back, venture capital-backed startups. Uh, all of the startups that I worked for, you would hear of none of them because they were all abject failures. And I think for me, that was one of the most um, learning rich times of my life where I worked with some of the most brilliant people with the biggest ambitions, uh, but, but ultimately none of those you know, kind of grand ideas materialized into something. Um, there were three or four of them that my wife uh, gladly, you know, kind of endorsed and backed me to go do these wild and crazy things. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed uh, all of that. And, and frankly, all of those experiences set me up to the opportunity that I have now uh, working at Facebook. And, and truly, there are very few companies in the world that have the reach and uh, impact of a company like Facebook and being put into a, a position to kind of help grow businesses from, again, concept to you know, full-blown go-to-market is uh, sort of what I've based my career around. Uh, and the things that we're doing now, you know, frankly, have the opportunity to impact millions, if not billions, of people in the coming years. So it's pretty fascinating that you describe the season where you're involved in these entrepreneurial efforts on a large scale that failed, somehow or another you land on your feet. Um, there was some kind of relationship with Oculus. I don't quite remember that. You, what, what was that turn? Did, were you with Oculus for a while? 
So no, Oculus was uh, a company that Facebook had purchased now uh, about four years ago. Uh, and I joined the team right after the acquisition of Oculus by Facebook. And this was essentially a multi-billion dollar acquisition that had no real go-to-market strategy, with, which most companies could never uh, really make that bet. And again, being in the right place at the right time, by God's grace, uh, was to take this idea and concept that Facebook had uh, after its acquisition of Oculus and say like, okay, let's go turn this into a business. Take no team, no resources, and take it to market. And it, it goes back to just being willing to hustle, right? When I go back to my college career where I worked 45 or 50 hours a week to make sure that I could pay my tuition. And it was that same mentality of working harder than anybody else, certainly never the smartest guy in the room, but just being willing to put in more hours and do harder work. So you were tasked with bringing a new product, something that Oculus had developed, a virtual reality platform, mm -hmm. would that be the right way exactly to say right. it? Exactly right. To market. And at first it was, it was a lost leader when you accepted leadership over this thing. And now it has become a major strategic objective for Facebook, correct? It, it has. And much of the work that we were doing and, and the team had been doing uh, has been accelerated by, you know, kind of the recent world events, right, where people are isolated and looking for new ways to connect and build community and, frankly, to learn. And what you described, uh, the initial at the outset, was essentially creating a gaming device, like an Xbox or a PlayStation or something along those lines, but has very quickly materialized into a way for businesses of all sizes to train their personnel, to uh, share new and different experiences, uh, for people to go places they've never gone before. And when we think about the ability for this technology to just unlock new experiences for people, uh, it's been an incredible journey and it's, it's gone from a concept to uh, multiple channels of business in about three years. Uh, and it's been exciting and uh, incredibly encouraging to be a part of that. I mean, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about your business, but I do know enough about it that Facebook is essentially saying that this is the, the next major revolution in um, the evolution of these types of products, right? Will you, will you talk through that for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, again, going back to uh, a, a lot of hard work and, and, and making sure that we're doing things the right way. But essentially, we are making the bet that virtual reality becomes the next computing platform. So you think about the journey of technology from PC to the mobile phones we have in our pocket to the next experience being, uh, and the next platform that we all use on a daily basis being some version of augmented or virtual reality. Uh, and we're making you know, massive, massive investments to bring that to reality. Uh, and it, it is uh, something that I, I'm really excited to be a part of. I guess so. I mean, this literally is a world, literally a world changing thing that you're involved in every day. It must be a lot of fun and probably a little bit of pressure. I would say pressure is a good way to describe it. Um, when businesses, as, as these guys know, as we were talking about, uh, there's a goal to, to drive revenue and have users and adoption and all of those things. Uh, pressure is high, but the, the reward that comes from it is, uh, is just as big. Well, let's talk a few minutes, guys, about um, some of the challenges you faced. I mean, clearly, some of them have already come up. Um, very few 
people who achieve success don't have a story of facing some real serious and difficult times. And that kind of story really is a blessing to be able to tell. Um, I, I find it interesting um, that when I uh, have talked to each of you about some of, of your challenges that you, uh, none of you talk specifically about your career. Um, Denny, um, the first time I met Haven and became aware of you, I was, uh, well, I got off a train at Penn Station, New York City, and um, I uh, heard a woman's voice behind me. I turned around and, and uh, saw this, this uh, young woman with uh, flaming pink hair uh, who, who called me pastor and said, my husband and I have been attending your church and uh, um, I just, I feel like it was, it was God ordained that I saw you here today. And she stood there and started telling me that, um, that she was carrying a child that had just been diagnosed in her womb with Down syndrome. And um, she stood there and, and in Penn Station and wept and I was so grateful to have the opportunity to stand there and pray with her. And I've watched this part of your story unfold. Just talk a little bit about that, if you would. Uh, well, like I said, Nova was a surprise already. Already a surprise baby. Um, I was already feeling like, how are we going to have three? Two is hard. I'm having a hard time with two. And then we got the news that she was diagnosed with, uh, it's called trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome. The, it's, it's funny, the grief is not for the fact that your child is, is going to be different. It's that you don't know how to handle it. I'm, I'm never worried about her. She's amazing. I mean, she's, Nova is a gift. She is the happiest baby. She's beautiful, fantastic. I just want to make sure that I can provide for her. And when, when special needs are involved, that's not always easy. So for us, our greatest challenge was how the, the the why was not even it, it it came this much but really it went straight to the how do we do this when nova was born she was in nicu for two weeks uh she wasn't her oxygen was was not good she wasn't regulating she wasn't her lungs hadn't fully developed um and the every everyone from from the OBGYN to the neonatal nurses to the, everyone in NICU to every, it was like God had placed them there. We were sitting there having all these questions, how do we find the right people? When a woman walks in with a basket and says, hi, my name is Judy, these are all the things for you. There's pamphlets and books and information, free books on being a parent to a child with Down syndrome and information about how to get in touch with early intervention how to get her physical therapy, occupational therapy, all the, all the things she'll need now. So when we came home from the NICU, we started therapies right away for her. Like she's hitting all of the things that she should be hitting because God placed in our lives the things we needed that we had no way of knowing how to find. And so I think that for me, my biggest challenge is sometimes stepping aside and, and having bold faith 
that God is, has his hand fully in our lives and we can trust in that. Uh, I, I hope it's okay for us to talk about this briefly. Um, I also know that part of the story, as I remember Haven conveying it to me that day, was that there was never any hesitation about bringing this baby into the world. Absolutely not. I think a lot of people would have second thoughts, but she's exactly how God made her. She has a God-given purpose in this world. I'm seeing that there is a very real purpose for Nova, and I don't know what it is. Only God knows that. And so it's just about staying the course, and I am so thankful for her in my life. She's, she's such a gift, and... Um, that's not to say it's not hard sometimes. It's not to say it's not going to be hard. There's going to be challenges. But God made her perfect and put her in the perfect place. Thanks, Denny. Yeah. Uh, Tim, um, when you and I had a conversation recently about challenges you faced, you, you talked in terms of family as well. You talked in terms of a desire for a family. Speak to that for a moment, if you would. Yeah, that, that conversation um, is probably the most difficult one to have as a, as a man uh, who wants to provide, uh, who wants to give a family to his wife. Um, it was certainly the, the desire of our heart to have a family. And I would say as someone who, as I talked about a little bit earlier, would work harder and do more and... Uh, make sure that I could provide for my family and I couldn't do it um, as uh, it was among the most difficult things where doctor visits for both Missy and I and things like that where because you you were you were not able to have children we were not able to have kids we had made the decision uh, about uh, I guess four or five years into our marriage um, to try to start having kids uh, and frankly we were we were not uh, seeing the results on the timeline that we expected. And for someone like myself, uh, who um, you know, has a, a goal and a task in mind, um, it, it's a very difficult thing and a humbling thing um, to, to go through a process like that. But I would say that the most incredible part of that journey was the relationship uh, that Missy and I continued to develop, um, where we had to kind of put aside our own pride, have to put aside our own timelines, uh, and really invest in each other, and most importantly, and invest in, in our relationship with the Lord. And throughout that, you know, that season of trying to have kids, uh, we, we, you know, we were waiting for uh, Olivia and Mac to come along. And if you spent time uh, with either of them, you would know that it's absolutely worth, uh, worth that wait. Uh, and it, you can't help but, but be happy uh, when you're around those two guys, that's for sure. Thanks, Tim. Um, so, Jamil, there are a lot of things we could talk about in your life in regards to challenges. I'd like, if we can, uh, to talk a little bit about race. I was deeply moved last week uh, when you and I had a conversation in preparation for this interview with part of your story and part of your family's story. And um, I think it would, be, it would be good for us to have that conversation for a little bit. One of the things you told me is that your great, great, great grandmother was born into slavery. 
And I think we're going to show on the screen her um, ex-slave bounty and pension certificate from January 17, 1898, which um, talks about her being set free from slavery. It's just an amazing uh, thing to consider that you sit here today um, having come from slaves. So we can go at this any way you'd like, but I know that you've had a passion around, I'm not sure the right way to say this, racial reconciliation. Is there, if there's another way we should say it, please correct me. Going at least back to your time as assistant athletic director at Ole Miss, where you faced uh, serious racial discrimination uh, and started getting involved in efforts to try to bring some, um, I don't know, remedy to some things that were clearly racist about the culture uh, of, of the athletic program and so on. Could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, and I think it's, you know, really important, especially now during the, the current climate. You know, here we are. We're talking about, you know, my great-great-great-grandmother's slave certificate. You know, she was born in 1855. So obviously those things are going on. You, you're thinking about, you know, the Civil War and, and the things of, the, of those times. And she was 43 when she signed that certificate. It was January 17th, you know, 1898. You know, I think about the history, but... You know, we have to ask ourselves, what has really changed? You know, we're still in a fight for, you know, equality to be treated as humans. And so, you know, one of my biggest challenges, and, and again, I'll talk about that, you know, my experience at Ole Miss, which I feel like that taught me some things about how to have a solution to the problem, uh, which is, starts with telling the truth. You know, it starts with, you know, we, we, we read Bible scriptures about you should know the truth and it shall make you free. You know, the Bible's very clear about, you know, confess your faults one to another so that you may be healed. There's research and data regarding um, acknowledgement, telling the truth, and how the impact that it has on your health. Um, but for far too long, you know, we as African Americans, um, also as citizens of America, we don't necessarily want to talk about it. You know, it's like the man who was on the roadside in, in the Bible in Luke 10. You know, we talked about the story of the Good Samaritan and how, you know, two people passed by. That was a, a, really a scripture about race and how the Good Samaritan finally stopped. But again, we don't, we always focus on the Good Samaritan stopping, but we, we don't focus on the people who turned away and just ignored it. That's kind of what it is when we start having conversations about race. The only way to really reconcile, in my opinion, based off my experiences, being at Ole Miss when I was a senior, we took the Colonel Reb mascot off the field. So now I'm an athlete having to process all of that, having to be in practices. People are asking us about it. How do we feel about it? And those things were difficult to deal with. I come back as an athletic director. Can I interrupt you just for a second? Yes, sir. So the mascot was a, was a Confederate colonel, essentially, correct? Yeah. Who would it, come it, onto it, the field with Dixie being played. Correct. So you Correct. had all those things going on. You know, they, they called it the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know, after we would score a touchdown, they would go into this rendition. Uh, it was really Dixie. Some would call it Slow Dixie, but it was a Battle Hymn of the Republic. Well, even if it's a Battle Hymn, it's a Confederate Battle Hymn, which if we really are honest with ourselves, that's a treasonous 
type of flag that declared war against the United States. But we really never talk about it, it as such. You know, we, we look at those symbols and we celebrate them as if, you know, my grandfather fought in that war and I'm proud of what they did. Well, I'm not, you know. So Juneteenth is coming up, you know, as, as a holiday or it's past, um, you know, when this airs. But then you start thinking about July 4th with our nation's history. So black folks are in a somewhat of a conundrum because what liberated the country enslaved our people. And so we never really give any credence to that. We never really talk about the meaning of that. And we as a race, we go through all of these mental gymnastics every day. You know, when I'm in my neighborhood, whether it be in New Jersey or in Tennessee, I have to think about, do I have my ID and wallet on me? If my light is out, my tail light is out, I gotta go to, the, to get it repaired because I just can't have any slip ups. I can't make a mistake because of the perceptions. If I'm a bird watcher uh, in Central Park and I'm looking at birds and somebody has a, a, doesn't have a leash on their dog, if I correct that person, God forbid that person's gonna call the police on me and say I'm trying to attack that person. And that's just not right. But that's no. what we live with every day. And that's been a challenge for me trying to be a man of faith. I know that God is real and he exists, but it is a struggle, you know, praying, getting on my knees, asking God, why am I being treated like this? Why am I under this type of stress and pressure on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm going into work or when I'm in meetings and I may be the only black or when I'm surrounded by teammates and I need to voice my opinion and speak up? You know, what are these things that are going to happen to me? You know, and I can't, I want to maintain my character and integrity, but I also want to have my dignity every day. To not be treated as less than or a second class citizen when a lot of these systems, uh, systemic racism has been really drafted in legislation to keep us enslaved. You know, if you look at the, the documents of the Constitution, it talks about African Americans were three-fifths humans. Look at the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. Like, we just really need to acknowledge that. And, and doing some work on racial reconciliation was that we would have these honest exchanges and dialogue about life, about the reality. There was another group that I worked with called Mission Mississippi, which was awesome. And what we would do is we would go out to lunch. And you would go out to lunch. The challenge was to, to have lunch with somebody that didn't look like you. Because a lot of times when we're attacking race, everybody feels like we have to do these big, grandiose programs. But it's really about real conversation, real honest dialogue and exchange that really help you get to the root of the problem. And so at these lunches, we would always talk about, you know, when was your first experience with racism? If I was black, I would tell them something that happened to me. If they were white, it might not have been something that happened to them, but it might have been something that they saw. It might have been something that they heard in their household or amongst friends that they had to really be honest about and explain it so then they could kind of get it. But what we learned uh, through these exercises is that you know we're more alike than we are different and that there are some things that are monolithic to what we want in life. You know, we all want to have raise a family, we want to be men, we want to, you know, um, you know, make money and provide. But then there are also some things that we realized that were different in how people would treat certain groups of people, uh, particularly the, the, the black community. So that form of racial reconciliation, acknowledging the problem and sharing personal stories was really, was really impactful. And then the next piece was the restorative justice model. How do we repair harm and how do we rebuild trust uh, within our communities and with one another? 
And, and that, those were, those, that's pretty much the racial reconciliation model. So one, one more thing on this. Um, you said something to me the other day that really moved me. You said something to the effect of being tired from carrying the weight of um, being a black man in white space and feeling like that you, you, have to, you have to do everything perfectly to, um, to be able to win in this world. And you even talked about how that this affects uh, African-American men's health. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say to that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's common. You know, if you, if you look, if you go to any doctor and they're diagnosing you, they'll say, you know, African-Americans have a history of high blood pressure. There are certain themes that are out there, and I want to get into all of them, but you can look them up on your own. Um, John Henryism, you know, is an old folk tale uh, who talks about an individual who competed against the steam engine, but he, he busted a blood vessel in his brain because he was strong, he was dedicated. You know, we were always raised to, you got to be two and three times better than the next person just to have a, an opportunity. And so that's how I was raised, that you, that's how it had to be, you know. Basically, we have to be exceptional as black people just to have a, a same opportunity as somebody who is very average or mediocre. And so, you know, if you start living your life that way, that can be very taxing. There are studies out there by uh, an author by the last name of Mays out of UCLA. Uh, they talk about the allostatic load and the, the, the amygdala hijacking that messes with your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, which drives blood pressure. There are also phenomena that's out there uh, by a guy named, by the name of Dr. William Smith. He talks about racial battle fatigue. He has an acronym called MEES, which is referencing the, um, the mundane, extreme environmental stress that black people are under uh, the whole entire time. That's that I have to be perfect. What are they thinking? How do I frame this? I'm a bigger black man, so when I'm in a meeting and I'm talking, or if I'm if I raise my voice too loud, you know, am I going to get Amy Cooper and she's going to say, "Hey, he's threatening me"? All of those things are things that are constantly going through our mind as African Americans, and that's the way. Yeah. Um, well, let's close our time by just talking a little bit more, though it's been uh, discussed, just about faith. You know, Tim, uh, as a member of our board here at TLCC, uh, I, I know that how important your faith and church is. Just speak to that for a moment, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, not only... Um, what we talked about earlier, of my, my upbringing inside of the church and our community and friendships and most kind of meaningful interactions being kind of centered around the church uh, is also, uh, you know, the faith and um, relationship that my wife and I have developed over the course of, you know, our, our eight years of marriage and a few years of dating as well. Um, one of the things that I, I love uh, to do each day is I'm a pretty rigid person, but is is spending the morning in in quiet time, very early, um, you know, 5.30 or 5.45 in the morning, just waking up and being able to spend time um, just either in prayer or uh, in reading, but also even more importantly, at the end of the day is spending time with my wife. It's our time after the kids have gone to bed, 
Uh, and you know, it, it's really our maybe 30 minutes of just being able to talk to each other, um, but most importantly, you know, before we go to bed, is praying with each other every night. And that faith has been the thing that has helped us uh, endure not only kind of personal struggles, but also gives us the confidence as we continue to raise our kids and we look at the world that we're living in and the, and the things and the conversations that we're having with a two and a half year old girl. That faith is the thing that has helped us keep going. Thank you, Tim. Um, it must be an interesting thing to live out your faith in the fast-paced world of Facebook, New York City, uh, your company in the headlines every day, you at the very top echelons. Just one other thing, you told me that you, you and Missy have made a very intentional choice to make the church one of the biggest investments of your life. And you're talking, I'm not just talking about money, but speak to that. Yeah, we, we have uh, made the decision because of the, the diversity that we've talked about at TLCC that it, we, we don't want Olivia and Mac to spend their entire lives surrounded by people that look just like them. It's one of the things that frankly we're most grateful for uh, is, is such a diverse points of view, diverse culture uh, that we have. And, and for me, it's, it's an encouragement that men and women of various backgrounds and points of view and religious upbringings can come together to drive really meaningful decisions uh, and be uh, kind of the caretakers of the church. What a tremendous opportunity that is. Uh, but we, we are fully invested here uh, and we love the, the body of believers and the family that we've, we've developed here. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Jamil, uh, your faith, how important it is. Uh, I know you, you're a church guy, whether you're living here and coming to TLCC, you were raised uh, to love the church. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, God is, one, he's amazing. Um, but the, the one thing that I, I'm learning the older that I get is that, you know, and, and, I, and I tell people this all the time, I don't know everything, so I'm good with that. But I also realize that I'm not perfect either. And so, you know, he says that his mercy is new every morning. And that when I get up, if I make a mistake, um, if I do the wrong thing, if I have the wrong thoughts, I can, I can come to him as, uh, you know, my heavenly father. And, you know, it's, it's the Romans 8 of what's to separate us from the love of God. And it's really about love. You know, he loves us enough, you know, that he did give his son to die for us. Uh, but he loves us enough where he wants to wake you up at 530 in the morning to have a conversation with you to say, what's going on? Hey, you, you didn't talk to me yesterday. I know you're busy or I know he loves me enough to know that when I'm extremely busy, I can say, hey, look, look Lord, I'm trying to make you first this morning. You know, I don't have a lot of time. And he'll say, go ahead, do what you got to do. But I can say a quick prayer to say, hey, God, I need your wisdom and instruction. Guide me throughout the day. You know, and that's the reality. You know, there are days where we have pockets where we can really get into him every morning like that. And then there are days where you're so busy, you know, you got something to do. You know, you got calls you have to be on and things you need to do. But I'm just asking for his instruction and wisdom. So faith is very important to me. It's what's held me together in the midst of crisis, um, inequities, whatever is going on. I can always go to him. He knows my deepest secrets, the things I struggle with, the things I don't tell Kim about. Um, and so he's a friend. Thanks, Jamil. Thank you. Denny, uh, 
how important is faith? And I'd say the world of Broadway would be an interesting world to live out your faith. Uh, I would absolutely agree with that. Faith is incredibly important to me. I grew up in the church. Um, when I was in high school, I, I literally had a moment where I thought I would go into ministry instead of be a dancer. Like I was really, I was driven for it. Um, and uh, I, I there, there were some events that happened and there was a falling away. And I went through this period where I was not actively pursuing a church family. But coming to TLCC, it's, it was fascinating to walk in somewhere and feel like you had arrived home, but you'd never been there. And to feel the community that existed and to also just to be instantly welcomed. I feel like for me, my own personal faith was important. Um, but I realized when I had children, something changed with every story I'd ever heard because I finally understood in a different way how God sees us as his sons and daughters. That is something that really changed for me with fatherhood in a way that I didn't anticipate. I had an ironclad decision that, that I had to make sure that my family was involved in a church and that, they, that I was giving to my children what my parents had given me. I can't force it on them, but I want to give them the knowledge. I want, to, I want to prepare them to have a relationship with Christ. And I feel like this church and this community of believers is the right place to be doing that with my family in particular, but, but really just the way that everyone is welcomed and shepherded is really, uh, it's really beautiful. Well, thank you, Denny. Thank you. The thing that makes this church so fantastic and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful place are people like you guys. We have a congregation that's full of just really fantastic people. And I'm so glad that each of you are part of it. Denny, Jamil, Tim, thank you so very much for taking time out of your incredibly busy lives to hang out with me and to share what you've shared with all the folks who are watching us today. And um, happy Father's Day.